So the third song we sang today was Amazing Grace, and as many of you know, Amazing Grace was written by a man named John Newton, and John Newton was a slave trader. That was part of what he had done. He took slaves on ships and uh, was involved in the slave trade. John, though, was raised by a godly and a pious mother. She read the scriptures to him, but unfortunately and tragically, she died of tuberculosis when he was only seven years old. And after that, he was raised by his father, who was a sea captain. And John, as a young boy of only 11 years old, made his first trip to the sea. As he began growing up uh, with this life on the sea, he grew less and less moral, and he really had no regard for God in his life. But when he was in his early 20s, he was sailing in the ocean when a great storm overtook their boat. John feared for his life. He thought all was going to be lost. In fact, a few sailors did die in this storm. And John himself, as a young man, was tending to the pumps to try to get water out of the hull of the ship as it was filling up. And when he was doing that, he looked to the captain of the ship and he said these words. He said, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And when he said that, it startled him. And he later recorded this. He said, mercy, mercy, what mercy can there be for me? He writes, this was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. John would later recall that in that storm on the ocean, that God was there, that God was in that storm and that God actually protected him in the storm. And John would attribute that terrifying storm at sea to his conversion and his salvation. God used that storm to get John's attention. The reason I bring this up is because here in Psalm 29, David, the author, describes a ferocious storm. Not the kind of storm we just witnessed with a light little trickling rain, but the kind that tears everything up in its path. And like John Newton, David believes that in that storm, the storm of Psalm 29, the Lord himself is revealed in his unimaginable power and unrivaled glory. Some commentators are very quick to point out that in the early church, Psalm 29 was oftentimes read to children and even entire congregations during an intense storm. They would find comfort in Psalm 29. Now, technically speaking, Psalm 29 is a hymn. It's a hymn. It's a song of praise to the Lord. I titled our sermon this morning, A Hymn of Praise. This hymn begins with all of creation praising the one true God, and it ends with God seated on his eternal throne, ruling and reigning. Like John Newton, the storm that David describes in Psalm 29 has an effect on people leading them to worship the Lord of the storm. Look again at verses 1 through 2. David here writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This hymn here in the first two verses begins with a call to worship. David here is calling on all creatures, those in heaven and on earth, to worship the Lord, the one true God. Notice he's calling in verse 1 on the angels, or the heavenly beings, he writes, to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then down in verse 9, 
the people in the temple all cry, glory. David, the author of Psalm 29, knows that all of creation has to worship and praise the Lord. The whole creation needs to join in in this chorus of song and of worship before the Lord. Now the word ascribe that David uses three times in these verses comes from a root word that means to give. So the idea is to give to God glory, to give to God strength. But of course, that's a little bit misleading. We don't give God his glory or his strength any more than we can give the sun its heat or its light. Glory and strength are intrinsic to who God is. He and he alone is full of glory and full of strength. And so it doesn't mean that we give God these things. And that's why the word ascribe is such a helpful English word to translate the Hebrew word here in verse 1. Ascribe means to acknowledge or to attribute something to someone. You're ascribing to the Lord these things. So so David here is saying that creation attributes to the Lord glory and strength. We attribute to the Lord the glory due his name. You could underline that expression. Do his name. What is David saying? He's saying we're just giving to God what is rightfully his. We're not adding anything to him. We're just affirming and declaring and acknowledging that these things are true about God. That God and God alone is glorious. That God and God alone is full of power and strength. He's the only one that is truly glorious. Whatever vain glory humans may accrue is fleeting and it's limited and it's always marred by our imperfections. Right? Even people who rise to positions of power and, and glory, if you want to say it that way, here on earth, that only lasts for a short season. I mean, think, for example, of the presidents of the United States. We only remember a few of them. There's so many that are obscure. Like, let me read a couple names for you. How about Warren Harding? How about Chester Arthur? How, bo- how about Millard Fillmore? We ringing any bells in here? No, unless you're a history buff. You're just like, who are these people? Guess what? When they were presidents of the United States, they were as well known as Joe Biden. Every man, woman, and child in the United States knew these people. They were making decisions in the Oval Office that had global implications. World leaders knew them. They were full of human, earthly, temporal glory. And now they're dead, and now we don't even know who they are. Their glory is fleeting. It's here for a moment and it's gone. The power players in the world today, the people who really matter, are just blips on the radar screen of history. But God, God is infinitely glorious. God is eternally glorious. With every new generation that comes on this earth, God's glory is on display. Psalm 19 verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Every new generation gets to look at this creation and say, wow, who is it that's behind this? And we marvel at his glory and we ascribe to the Lord glory. In the same way, whatever strength humans may boast of is fleeting and it's limited. I mean, think about the highest level athletes in the world. These people that are specimens of human strength and can accomplish great human feats. 
Their, their reign of supremacy is so short and so limited. I mean, if you're into fighting sports like UFC, I mean, think about Conor McGregor, the most famous UFC fighter in the world. But guess what? He was kind of only on top for a couple of years. A lot of people are saying he, he now can't fight at the highest levels anymore. And 10 years from now, he's going to be completely irrelevant to the sport mixed martial arts. Or some of you are old enough in this room to remember baseball superstars of 30 years ago, NFL superstars, basketball superstars, and guess what? These people are going to be unknown to our children and certainly our grandchildren. But not God. God is omnipotent. God is truly full of strength. God accomplishes everything that he intends to accomplish. No one can thwart his will. His power is on display 24-7 around us in the world that he created and in the world that he sustains. His strength is never lacking and his strength will never wane. And so David is right here in saying that we just need to acknowledge and ascribe to the Lord what is due his name. He and he alone is worthy of your worship because of who he is. And so David, here in these first two verses, calls first on the angels, and by extension, all of us, to ascribe all glory and strength to the Lord. Or, as he puts it differently, to worship him in the splendor of holiness. Now, the word worship, in Hebrew, literally means to bow down. So it sort of speaks of a posture. You're bowing down before someone or something. And the idea here is that we are bowing our hearts and our lives in submission and surrender to the will of God. James Montgomery Boyce points out that here in these first verses, praising God has two parts. Number one, praising God means to attribute and declare all glory, honor, and strength are his. And then number two, it's bending our wills in submission to his rule. So we are affirming what's true about God. We declare these things. We praise God by describing what is actually true about him. And we don't stop there. We say, because this is who you are, my life is yours. I'm bowing the knee before you. I am in submission to you because that is what is due to a being like you. The creator of all things. This is how the Apostle Paul describes worship in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says to the church, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Just saying to the Lord, everything that I am, my mind, my emotions, my body, all of this is submitted to you. It's surrendered to you. I'm a sacrifice, but not a dead one on an altar. I'm a living one that is walking around and living a life, but I'm sacrificed to you. And then he says that this is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship is not just singing songs. That's part of it. But worship is about all of our lives. That our lives are conforming to what's true about God. That he's the creator. He's in charge. He is the one filled with glory and strength. Well, this call to worship in verses 1 and 2 is followed up now by the cause to worship in verses 3 through 10. 
In these verses, David is describing now an intense storm. It begins over the waters, probably the waters of the Mediterranean Sea in verse 3. We see there that as the storm is, is kind of brewing over the Mediterranean, there's loud thunderings with it. Notice in verses 5 and 6 that this storm breaks trees and makes the mountains shudder. In verses 7 through 8, there's lightning strikes and the whole wilderness is even shaken. And then in verse 9, animals are even giving birth prematurely because they're so terrified from this ferocious storm and the, the trees are stripped bare as the storm tears through. But notice that David does not just see this as an act of nature. He sees this rather as an act of God. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Now, the voice of the Lord, that expression is used seven times in verses 3 to 9. David wants us to understand that the voice of the Lord is inside the storm. And where you find a person's voice, you find the person's presence. So what he means when he says that the voice of the Lord is in the storm is that God himself is there and he's acting and he's speaking. To make this explicitly clear, notice what he does. In verse 3, he says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. He's talking voice. Then he says, the Lord over many waters. Same idea in verse 5. He says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. And then he says, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And then in verse 8, he says, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. But then he just says, the Lord shakes the wilderness in verse 8 there. So again, the idea is that God is present and active in this storm. He's there and he's speaking. He's behind the storm. So David is not making a scientific statement here in these verses about how clouds form and how lightning strikes. David is making a theological statement about who is the ultimate cause behind the storm that he's bearing witness to. So Joe, you can relax. Okay, this is not scientific here. This is poetry and this is theology that David is unpacking for us. Now, as we see here, the storm in this, in this chapter begins north of Israel and it moves down through the Holy Land and ends up actually south of the nation Israel. As I mentioned, it begins in the Mediterranean Sea in verse 3. God is thundering there. He's present over many waters as the storm is just offshore. And then in verse 4, we find the main point of verses 3 through 9. What does he say again in verse 4? He says, the voice of the Lord is powerful. God's power is particularly evident in his voice. God's power is particularly evident evident in his voice. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, but that's the most important point of this whole section. Then in verse 5, notice he says again, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord in verse 7 Flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. 
So we see here that God's voice in this storm snaps trees in half. And not just any trees. David thinks, well, where are the mightiest trees? The most renowned trees in this area were the cedars of Lebanon. In fact, Solomon himself imported cedars from Lebanon. These were the strong, mighty cedars, kind of like our redwoods here in the United States. And David says, yeah, even those mighty trees, God just snaps them in half, just breaks them. Notice he also makes the mountains tremble and move. Lebanon was a mountainous region north of Israel where the nation Lebanon is today. Syrian was a famous mountain in the southern part of Lebanon. And David here says, listen, the mountains themselves are skipping like an animal that's been frightened by a voice. Now to the ancient mind, there was nothing on earth that was perceived to be more stable or solid or immovable than a mountain. It's still kind of true for us today. Like, how do you move a mountain? And this is before they had dynamite and nuclear bombs and could blow things up. It was just like mountains are there and you just deal with it. And David's saying, yeah, yeah, there's truth to that, but here's the deeper truth, that when it comes to the Lord, the Lord can walk in and he can speak a word and the mountains run off like an animal that's being spooked. That's how powerful God is. That's underscoring the unmatched power of God. In verse 7, God is behind the lightning strikes. And then in voice, verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Specifically, the wilderness of Kadesh, which is all the way south of the nation of Israel now. The wilderness that most likely Joshua and uh, the children of Israel and Moses wandered through for 40 years. So the storm then has swept through the Holy Land. And this storm is wreaking havoc on anything that comes in its way. Now in verse 9, that first expression, where it talks about the deer giving premature birth, could be referring to that. The Hebrew there could also be translated that the storm twists the mighty oak tree. But either way, it just continues reinforcing the same point. God's voice and God's presence is incredibly powerful. Now Psalm 29 reminds us of an important truth. That God, the true God, is not a distant being, nor is the true God passive. As if he's a sort of a a, a God that deism would talk about. Kind of a God who just winds up the universe and sets it in motion and then just ignores it and just lets random things happen. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible enters into the creation story over and over and over again, Not the least of which happened at the incarnation where Jesus, the God-man, actually entered into the creation narrative and lived and died for our sins and rose from the grave. The reason why God comes into creation is to reveal himself to his creatures. Here in Psalm 29, God is active in the storm. This is teaching us things about God, namely his glory and his power. This is why when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, remember he went in the boat with the disciples and crossed the sea. He was sleeping in the boat. This great storm kicks up over the Sea of Galilee. All of the disciples begin to panic and they wake Jesus up. And here's what we read about the disciples in Mark 4.41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
See, these Hebrew disciples of Jesus, they knew that God is the one who is behind the storms. He's the ultimate cause behind all that's happening in the world. And so they see this man, Jesus, who they knew was a prophet. They knew he was a holy man, but now they see him actually assuming that that power that belonged to God alone himself. And he's standing up in the midst of the sea and he's calming the storm with what? His voice. He's doing exactly what David's describing here. He just stands up and he just speaks a word. He says to the storm, peace, be still. And the whole thing just stops. And rightly, the disciples are filled with fear and awe and terror. And they're asking themselves questions about his identity. (laughs) Who then is this guy? He can actually speak like God and and change weather patterns. He can stop storms that were going to rip us apart, rip us to pieces, rather, on this sea. Of course, the rest of the Gospels would fill in the answer to that question, who is this man? And the answer is that he is God himself, God become man. Now, I love the end of verse 9. Because it finally shows us the human response to the God who rides on the clouds. It says this, and in his temple, so picture God's people gathered in God's house to worship. Sort of like we are here this morning. They're gathered together and in his temple all cry glory. Now notice there's an exclamation point there. Notice that there's a capital G there. So this is not, and they all cry, glory. Like mild and meek and wimpy. They all cry, glory. This is, and they all cry, glory. Glory in the temple. They're shouting. This is the response. They're afraid of the storm and the power of God that is upon them. And they're looking at this majestic creator God. And they're awestruck. And they're in shock, and all they can do, the human response, is to attribute and ascribe, like verse 1 and 2 talked about, all glory and all strength and all power and all honor to God himself. Let me put this to you differently. When a person becomes aware of the presence and the power of God, it always results in this. It always brings them to a place where they're able to say at the level of their heart that there is no one and there is nothing more glorious, more powerful, and more worthy of my worship than the Lord. That's what happens. And if you're still in your own heart wrestling with competing idols, competing gods, wondering like, is there, are there other people or other things that might be more glorious than God, more powerful than God, then you're just not there yet. Because when we really, really come face to face, when we really experience the presence and the power of God, this is the response. Now, that's not to say that as a Christian, you never battle against idolatry or other things. But it is to say that at the deepest recesses of your being, you have been convinced of a fundamental truth. He is glorious. 
Everything else in the universe takes a backseat to the Lord. And in your heart, you begin to cry out a brand new cry. And it's a cry of glory in his direction. So where does a person become aware of the presence and the power of the Lord then? Like, like how do we become aware of this? Where do, we, where do we find the presence and the power of God today? Well, let's come back to a statement I made earlier based on verse 4. God's power is particularly evident in his voice. This is the testimony from Genesis to Revelation. That the place where we see, where we come face to face with the power of God, where the presence and the power of God meets us, if I can say it that way, is in God's voice. Or to put it differently, in God's word. Let me sketch this for you real briefly. First, I want you to think about this. Think about the power of God's voice in creation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, how do we see that existence came into being? Does not the poet Moses there say over and over again with a refrain, this simple expression, let there be and then boom, there was light. Let there be. And then boom, there was vegetation. Let there be. God speaks in Genesis chapter 1 and creation happens. So when God speaks, God acts. There's no disconnect there. He says it and he does it simultaneously. His word, his voice is loaded with his omnipotent power so that he could speak it and the universe came forth. Then, as you continue in the Bible, you've got to see this, the power of God's voice in the gospel. As the gospel message is preached, the message about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross where he bore the sins of his people so that they could be forgiven and be reconciled to God, and the resurrection of Christ from the grave where he trampled over death so that he could give us eternal life. When that message is preached, it is filled with, with power. And it is a power as significant as the creation power in Genesis chapter 1. Because just as in Genesis chapter 1, God's voice brought something from nothing. When the gospel is preached, God takes that and he brings faith where there was no faith. He brings life where there was spiritual death. And God is powerful in the preaching of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see this. The Apostle Paul, in context here, is talking about the ministry that he had received and the other apostles had received, and he calls it the, the, the ministry of the new covenant, that they are preachers of this new gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. I want you to notice here in these verses the connection that Paul makes to when God spoke at creation. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, "...for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord." with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And check this out in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So this is a reference back to Genesis. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, here's his argument. Just as God's word went out at creation and it caused light to shine out of darkness, God's word goes out in the gospel now 
and it causes light to shine in the hearts of people so that they can see the truth about Jesus, so that they can come to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or more simply, Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's voice in the gospel, God's word in the gospel is filled with saving power. It can take people from death to life. It can take people from darkness to light. Guess what? It's pulling people out of the kingdom of darkness and hell into the kingdom of light and God's own son. There's one more step to this though. We have to see the power of God's voice in the Bible. Tim Keller says, His divine power is active in his word. Do not underestimate then how much the power of God can do in your life through the Bible. Such a great quote. I'm going to rattle off a couple quick things. And there's many more that can be said, but check this out. God's word, the Bible, number one, exposes us. Here's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is powerful enough to expose to you what's actually going on inside of you. Like a surgeon with a scalpel and other instruments, the word of God just peels back all the layers of self-justification and self-righteousness and denial and childhood trauma and all of that. It gets behind all of that and says, here's who you really are. Here's what's really going on. That's powerful. Not only does God's word expose us, second, God's word sanctifies us. It makes us more like Jesus. It makes us godly people. Here's John 17, 17. Jesus prays this for us. He says, to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is powerful enough to change you into the person that God's calling you to be and the person that you ultimately want to be. That change comes through the word of God. Third, God's word keeps us from sin. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As we devour the word of God as we treasure the word of God as we memorize and meditate on the word of God it keeps us from sin number four God's word guides us Psalm 119 105 says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path this is like having a flashlight in the dark this is like having a lamp better yet this is like being able to hit a switch on a wall in a dark room and the LEDs come on everything becomes clear Number five, God's word equips us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How might we be equipped for all of the good works that God has prepared for those of us that are in Christ Jesus? Answer through the word of God. It equips us. Sixth, God's word makes us wise. I don't know about you, but I could use more of this. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And Psalm 19, 7 says it makes wise the simple. Finally, 
And maybe in some we could say this, that it is God's word that sets us free. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word of God sets us free. Free from sin, free, free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from the power of sin in our lives so that we can actually live the life that God has called us to live. And I say this to make this point, that this family is the reason why we give so much time and priority to the word of God every single week when we gather together. I can't help you, ultimately. You can't help each other, ultimately, if all we do is reduce what we have to offer to each other to our own opinions, to our own natural wisdom and skills. What we all need in order for us to experience all the blessings I just talked about is we need a constant onslaught of God's word as our daily diet. You just need it from morning to night. That's why David says at the beginning of the Psalter that the blessed person meditates on the word of God day and night. We have about a 90-minute liturgy on Sunday morning. And guess what? We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. We read the Bible. And we preach the Bible. And hopefully by God's grace we obey the Bible. It's all about this because God's power is particularly evident in God's word. So we're never going to stop doing that. We don't have a plan B. We just share God's word. That's all we can do. And I would encourage all of you, be very, very wary of churches that are skimpy on God's word. What does that tell you about a church like that? Where is their trust for change coming from? Do they really believe these fundamental truths about the Bible that God's power and his presence is mediated through his voice, his word? We can never move from this. We have to be a word-centric church. And if you want to be healthy, you have to be a word-centric Christian. If you ate 10,000 calories one day a week and zero calories the rest of the week, you're not going to be healthy. So we can do what we can do on Sundays. But if we want to be healthy, vibrant, and alive spiritually, you have to be committed to these exact same ideas I'm talking about. You have to believe yourself that God's power is available to you, particularly in his word. There has never been a mighty or a strong Christian who has been ignorant of God's truths in his word. God's people love God's word. It's our daily sustenance and it's where God's power comes. Now let me just say one thing by way of clarification and we'll finish. In saying all of that, I don't want anyone to believe that this is a magical book. That, who's my Bible printed by? That Schuyler used supernatural paper and ink when they made this book so that if I just open it up, it'll change me. Atheists can read the Bible and it has no impact on them. The reason why the Bible 
can be powerful in your life is because the words that are contained here were the original voice act of God himself, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets and the apostles of of old. His voice went out and they recorded them. And this is what happens every time you and I come to this written word by faith. The Holy Spirit is able to be present with us and meet us here. And listen, this is so key. And re-speak these exact same words into your life and into your heart right now. And when God speaks, God acts. And where the voice of the Lord is, there is power. So as we come daily, weekly, constantly to the word of God with hearts that are open by faith, saying, Lord, I'm here. Your servant is here. I'm listening. Speak to me. This is the place where the Spirit takes these same words that he spoke thousands of years ago and he says, I've got a word for you. He speaks these things to us. And we're able to actually interact with the living God. We walk away changed. Okay, let's finish. Verse 10, we see here now that God is enthroned over the flood. That's what David writes. Now he could be referring to the flood that follows after a powerful storm. We don't have to rewind many years in our history to remember a massive flood in Montecito. When you have heavy, heavy rains, it can ultimately end up in a flood. And God is over that too. But more likely to the Hebrew reader, the word would have taken them back to a kind of famous story in Genesis 6, Noah's flood. Because this right here in Psalm 29.10 is the only other time that that word from Genesis 6 is used in the Old Testament. That word flood. So for Hebrew readers of Psalm 29, it's most likely that their mind would have gone, huh, it sounds like what David is saying here is that God is enthroned over the flood, the flood of Genesis chapter 6, which if you recall is a flood of judgment. And so it's very likely that as David here has been unpacking the ways that God's presence and power hits people, one response is that we, we trust and we worship. Another response is that we should be aware that judgment will loom over us if we don't respond properly. So the king here, the Lord, sits enthroned forever. And one day he will judge the nations. Verse 11 now, the final verse, brings us to the concluding worship. So there was a call to worship. We just looked at the cause to worship and now we see the concluding worship. Notice that it ends here with a prayer. He says this, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Now I love this because God has revealed himself in Psalm 29. He's come, he's entered in, he's revealed himself to his creation in the storm through his voice. But he doesn't just come to say, hey, this is who I am. It's part of it. But God comes and God reveals himself to impart something, to give something, to bless his people. Notice that the God who is filled with glory and the God who is filled with strength now in verse 11 gives strength 
to his people. This is what David is praying. God, you have all the strength. Would you give strength now to us, to your people? That word strength carries the idea of protection. So this is a strength that David is asking for to withstand our enemies. And God is pleased to give that strength to his people. God gives us the strength to overcome the three great enemies of all of our souls, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But he gives strength to us for the whole of our Christian life. He gives us strength to persevere in our faith. He gives us strength to overcome temptation. He gives us strength to embody the fruit of the Spirit. He gives us strength to serve him with our gifts and abilities. And he gives us strength to withstand persecution. So David says, God, you've come. We see that. We acknowledge that. We worship you. Would you please give us strength? Because we don't have it on our own. And finally, notice that he blesses us with peace. Of course, this makes sense. As God protects his people, of course they're at peace. They're free from anxiety and threat. Many of you know the Hebrew word for peace that's often translated peace is shalom. One of the richest words in the Old Testament. That word shalom means more than just not having enemies at your throat. Shalom means absolute human flourishing. Shalom means life the way that it was supposed to be lived. Shalom is like life in the Garden of Eden before sin entered in. And David's saying, would you give us that? Would you give us protection and strength? And would you cause us to flourish the way we were supposed to? This verse reminds us that we are strong and we are flourishing only when we're open to God's power and his presence in our lives. So, to summarize, this psalm calls us to join in with all of creation, ascribing all glory and strength to the Lord alone. And it calls us to recognize God's presence and power in the world. He, and particularly his voice, is the mightiest of storms, laying waste to anything and everything in his path, accomplishing all that he wants to. And this psalm calls on God to bless all of us who recognize these things about God. For those of us who are humble before the Lord, acknowledging his presence and his power, and seeking his protection and peace by sheer grace, we can rest assured that we will have it. Let's pray together.